Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Deborah Erling to hear about the lost journals of Sacagawea. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Oh, Dr. Gessler, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I am so glad that you're here and we get to hear about this fascinating book and what inspired you to write it. Before we dive into that, would you please tell us about yourself? Um, Well, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and I moved to the Flathead Reservation when I was 18 years old, and I became the first public defender in the tribal court system on the Flathead Reservation. Um, I had dropped out of call, uh, I dropped out of high school at the age of 15, and uh, I was going to community college when I expressed a desire Um, to my tribe to return. And um, my mother had left when she was a a young woman and I wanted to return and and do something. So I returned to the tribe and uh, I worked for, I I worked for about three years as a public defender. And then I moved on. Um, I wanted, it sparked a desire in me to go to law school. I ended up at the University of Washington um, where I met uh, James Welch, uh, the the wonderful writer, Blackfeet writer. Um, and he, in that class, it changed the course of my life. And I went on to study at uh, Cornell. Um, I wrote my first short story, which was called Perma Red, and it became a novel. And um, then I went to Cornell and I got, I was in the MFA PhD program. Uh, It was kind of interesting because there at Cornell, uh, it was in the height of uh, deconstruction. And two of my, uh, two of my professors uh, were adamantly opposed to my getting a PhD. They didn't want me to begin to deconstruct the stories of my people. And they encouraged me to um, get my MFA and they promised me that I would still be able to teach and that, you know, I would have a great life, uh, but I wouldn't have a PhD. So I followed their advice. Um, and I taught for 29 years at the University of Montana. And uh, I retired in 2021. Um, I've taught many uh, writers uh, and, you know, have had the privilege of having so many students go on to be published and go on to do great things with their lives. And so, um, you know, teaching is such a gift, um, not only to those who are being taught, but certainly maybe more to the teacher. So, um, you know, and in the course of that, uh, you know, 29 years, I struggled uh, to publish um, I wrote essays mostly, and then on the, you know, when break came, I would work on my novels, but I found it difficult to to keep up the momentum, to have that deep kind of thought and concentration that it takes to complete a novel. Um, you know, there's so much preparation for, for teaching, I believe. Um, so when I finished, um, when I retired, um, I feel like I, when I finally quit, um, I was able to write uh, The Lost Journals of Sacagawea in a really short amount of time. Um, I'd studied that. I studied Sacagawea for many years. 
Uh, but finally, I had the opportunity to write the story, and it came out in a rush. So eight months, I think it was, uh, total to, to write The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. Was it a renewing experience writing it to be able to go at that pace? It seems like it would either be giving back to you or leave you exhausted. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, Originally, this story came to me, um, oh, when was it? It was at the bicentennial of uh, Lewis and Clark. So it would have been around 2004. And uh, I didn't want to... I really didn't want to write anything about Lewis and Clark, but um, I was encouraged by the Missoula Art Museum uh, to write in response to Native artists who were responding to uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition. And so at first I turned them down and they said, please, whatever you can, like, are the person who originally signed up to to write for the artists or write kind of um I don't even know what it would be for the artist. And they said, whatever you want to write, um, we'll accept. And so it's that kind of freedom, I think, when someone says, we want you and we want you to write something and you can write whatever you want. And so I had that happen to me twice in this book. So the original, The Lost Journals of Sacagawea, which was a museum piece book that I collaborated on with the um, wonderful master printer, Peter Koch out of Berkeley, California, um, that became a book, uh, a, a very like small book. It was like huge book, but small um like it, it wasn't really very many pages. I think it ended up being something like 30 pages. Um, when I sat down again, um, there, I think I just thought about it for so long. There's times I think writing is a process of thinking. And so I thought about, you know, I thought about uh, Sacagawea for so long. I thought about uh, her life. I thought about her travel, um, her, her journey in life. So I, uh, so when I sat down, it seemed like it literally just spilled out of me. And there are times when I would be asked for, you know, a little bit more, or the editor would say, you know, I'm not quite certain about what this means, or, um, you know, I, I don't understand this particular character. And each time I sat down, which was really um, refreshing <laughs> to me, was each time I sat down, there was just an amazing almost a, a release of the story. Um, it's as if uh, it was coming from another place, and, um, not my own, not my own voice or or not even my own mind. Sometimes it felt like I was tapping out the story, like I was um, hearing it or sensing it um, rather than really thinking about it. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does. Would you briefly be able to summarize how you describe the book? Um, I think that the book is um, really centered on Sacagawea from the time that she was a very young girl at um, at Three Forks, uh, what is now known as Three Forks, Montana. And it was known as Three Forks back then, I think, because it's where the three rivers come together. Um, and it starts with her her life, her journey, uh, in her life for the teachings that her both her parents um, give to her, her um, relationship with um, 
a man that I call Blue Elk. Um, and then uh, it's her capture by, I have the Hadatsa or the crow, I don't name uh, which tribe abducts her and takes her to um, Mandan. They take her to the Knife River, actually. Um, and uh, from there, it journeys on to where she lives among uh, the Hadatsa. Uh, she is gambled away to Charbonneau. And uh, she lives with him. And she lives with another woman who was abducted, Otter Woman. Uh, I, I date her age differently. I began to think about how old she must have been. I read the journals. I looked for her. I searched for her. And um, I think in they, the historians say she was born in 1788 and they place her. They don't know, which I find really curious. They don't know how old she was. They say she was born in 1788 and that she was 12 years old when she was abducted by the Hadatsa. I place her at much earlier than that, at nine years old when she's abducted. And I place her age after reading the journals as 12 years old uh, when she becomes impregnated and when she uh, when she gives birth. Um, so traveling with the core, I have her as a very young woman. And I take her all the way um, from the time when she leaves uh, she leaves Mandan camp and returns to her people. And beyond that, uh, it was her vision when she, it it was her vision to to go to the ocean. Um, and I, I, I thought uh, once she returns to the Lemme Shoshone, um, that it kind of was the the actually the climax of the story. I, I couldn't put her uh, back in the boat and back to travel again. Uh, once she had reached the place that she so longed to be. Um, Within the journals, there's this emotional encounter uh, with um, this young girl um, who is known as Pop Pink, uh, who was also abducted with her and somehow managed to escape and make it back to um, to make it back to Three, three Forks. Um, and so, when she saw her, uh, when she saw that she was alive. When she saw her brother again, Camille White, when she witnessed them, uh, her emotion was so beautiful and so painful. Um, uh, just she couldn't stop crying. And there was reference to her where, you know, Clark, I think it was Lewis who said, like, he didn't think she had any emotion in her. And I thought about um, that whole journey, how how grief-stricken she was, um, that she didn't express emotion, how how fear-stricken she she must have been. Um, so the story, The Lost Journals of Sacagawea, is is very much focused on um on Sacagawea and what her life must have been like. Um I think about too, because Lewis and Clark were always, you know, they were gathering all of these items. They were they were gathering things like they would take um a beaver pelt and they would wrap it. They'd they'd take a 
magpie and they would wrap the magpie in the beaver pelt and they would tell um, the Mandans that they were sending back uh, these things to the great white father, um, which is Thomas Jefferson. Uh, but I was thinking about how different like cultural uh, misinterpretation um, how that would seem very much like a medicine bundle that's being sent back. Um, how curious that was to them that there was, uh, they were fascinated by the idea, many of the tribes are fascinated by the idea that there was a great white father uh, who provided all of the ammunition and weapons and power and might uh, that the Lewis and Clark expedition um, revealed to them. So I think the whole journey is really focused on a very young a very young girl really who has to who who has a trials of living with um traveling with uh 34 men who um are you know wasn't a wholesome it it wasn't a wholesome journey uh for her and you know carrying a child how did she how did she do that and some of the accounts within uh within the 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 journals themselves, the Lewis and Clark, the Gas journals, the Ordway um, journals, uh, speak to um, just kind of an well an overwhelming um, presence of like uh, their their sexuality as men, um, their desire for uh, women, their randiness, uh, and I think about what what that would have been like to be a woman who was with a man that they kept calling her husband uh, when she wanted to return to uh, the Lemmy Shoshone and to a man that her parents had promised her to many years before. Uh, so that's, that's a kind of journey that uh, the story is about. Um, you know, and I realize in, in, in fiction that we think of uh, the idea of presentism. Um, and, uh, but I think the wonders of uh, fiction are that it, it can um, return. We can look through the lens of not so much our own historical ideas or our present day ideas, but that we can look through the lens and um, we can look through the lens of our of our own emotional um, life path, um, the ways in which we feel as women, um, the ways in which we feel as human beings, uh, what it would be like to be on such a treacherous and long and hard journey, um, what it might have been like for to be a young woman and in fear of um, of the men who surrounded you that. Um, you have to sleep in the same tent as the captains uh, to protect yourself, to be protected um, from these men. Would you like to read to us from the book? Yes, thank you. Days of Intuan. The day is bleached as the buffalo skulls we pass. Dead buffaloes stack rivers so deep wolves stagger under the weight of their own wobbly bellies. Lazy wolves lay beside buffalo and nod on green melt flesh. Lewis gutters laughter as he walks up to meet swollen wolf and shoots. We are entering lone man's place, where we find only things coyote left behind. 
Hills burn black as cauldrons, deep earth hissing at edges of dark, woods where no one stops. We scare awake by a blazing tree. Of all the trees in the forest, only this tree torches, flaming over the lodge where the captain sleeps. The fiery treetop plummets down on our tent and blitzes into a thousand tiny sparks of floor of fire. Clark calls the fire the devil's fire, and the men pull their tents closer together. But no one, not even Lewis, sleeps. Thank you. Why did you select that passage to share with us? I think it's because it's into an unknown, uh, you know, when we really think about the Lewis and Clark expedition and, you know, they were charting really unknown territories to them and they were entering places that they didn't realize um, held sacred meaning. Um, and I find it, found it curious that within the uh, journals themselves, like this was, uh, this, uh, this had happened to them. Um, and it, it probably was a lightning storm that went down into the roots of the tree and then exploded. But it seems almost too coincidental that they, uh, of all trees, that it was Lewis and Clark pitched their tent under that tree that exploded in fire. Um, so that particular passage, I thought, was relevant to um, kind of the, the ways in which uh, they see the world and the way in which Sacagawea viewed the world. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that your editor had sometimes asked for clarifications of of the story and, and making sure that, that they could understand it. There are words that you use in the book that may be unfamiliar to some readers, and the book doesn't have uh, a glossary. I really liked that choice, that it was so her world that we had to orient to and not the other way around. Do you want to talk a bit about that choice? Um, you know, I found that fascinating because uh, I had two editors, well, actually three editors. Um, the initial editor was Daniel Slager, who is the head of Milkweed um, and also the CEO and head editor. And he was, um, his vision was really uh like wondrously vast, like he wanted me to write what I wanted to write and kind of said, said such like he, it gave me carte blanche to um, approach this story in, you know, a, in my own, in my own way um, to find my own path through it. Uh, the, the second editor, then he passed it on to um, the managing editor, the managing editor, Brock Russell, uh, took me through the novel and uh, really, he was a poet. So he really understood uh, the lens um, that I was working with. Um, he was thrilled by uh by the sounds of the language itself. And I think sometimes we don't really need sometimes to have a glossary to understand uh, the gist of something, what's going on. And sometimes uh, the mystery of the story, um, the mystery that she held as a, you know, as a native woman uh, was really important to me that, um, 
that there were they they always I, one of the misconceptions I think about Sacagawea is that she didn't uh, speak or understand English or French or any of the other, but they thought that she would understand these really complex. You know, she could speak Hidatsa, she spoke Lemmy Shoshone, but she lived with a Frenchman, uh, and she was you know it was like. It was her very life that um, she had to learn these languages. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to turn that idea uh, back on uh, readers in some ways, that you're in her world and you have to experience it the way that she uh, allows you to experience it. So there's um, there's a, there's there's mystery there, and there's also um, an opportunity um, to really feel. Uh, I think um, really feel maybe more deeply uh, uh, stories and and how we encounter stories, and maybe more deeply um, how she must have felt encountering uh, these languages that were foreign to her. Granted, a reader doesn't have to survive a story in the way that she had to learn a language to survive. But I think in under, you know, whenever we're, we as learned people have to encounter um, any, any area of study, uh, we must have to deeply study it. We have to think and consider. So, so that was really important to me. When I finally got to the final editor, um, Lauren Langston Klein, she, um, she was, you know, kind of pushed me to write, uh, oh, she she wanted a note to the reader. But in the note to the reader, I didn't include a glossary. However, I did explain some things that were missing when um, anthropologists read uh, or listen to or recorded Native stories. One is that when something is repeated, when let's say something is repeated twice, it means, you know, there's something here and it alerts you. When it's repeated three times, you should pay attention. When it's repeated four times, it means that the story um, is changing. It's transforming into um, into areas that are unknown, into areas that are unutterable and possibly sacred. So, you know, and many of the anthropologists, including Krober, like said, oh, these are just um, redundancies, so cut them out. Uh, so, so, so much of the stories that he collected, um, although they're important materials, many of those things became uh, gutted because they didn't fully represent the meaning of the stories that were being um, given to the recorder. Your story challenges prevailing views of Sacagawea. Can you take us into that? What Were there particular uh, ways you wanted to challenge it, or was it the story itself is entirely challenging prevailing views? You know, I think whenever we listen to, uh, you know, possibly the other side of, um, you know, the like something as, you know, huge as um, as impactful as the Lewis and Clark expedition was, uh, we don't you know, often we don't hear the stories. I mean, Lewis and Clark were military men. Um, they were brilliant men. Uh, they could. You know, they were mapping the land. They were um, 
you know, drawing the, you know, the zoological specimens as well as the, you know, ecological uh, specimens. Uh, they were, um, they they had just a, a tremendous amount of information, and yet the things that were really important, some of the things that you know many historians and uh, many Native people also wish they would have recorded were the stories that they were hearing. So, uh, you know, they didn't, um, they didn't include that. So if I think about um, Sacagawea, um, I think about, you know, how she, she, she is not really seen in many ways as a flesh and blood human being. Um, she's seen through this mythological lens. So how to give her, um, how to give her a voice uh, was kind of the driving force in writing this novel. So I think I kind of lost the, like, the thread of your question. Um, well, that was the question, just the challenges that you wanted to, that you wanted this work to, to do but also misconceptions about her. When we, when we mythologize a girl, we take away her girlhood. And one thing this book really makes clear is she's a child. You know, I, I think um, I present her as a child and it's a, you know, even if she was um, by some, uh, non-native historical account, she was 16 to 18 years old. Um, the older that they place her, um, the older at the time of her abduction, which they place at age 12, it pardons a lot of um, sins of these men. Um, it certainly uh, is a little bit more understandable uh, to even our, the like our current, our present day audience, uh, that she be older, um, you know, but if she is a child, um, and from my reading of the story, it seems like she was a child. Um, when she fishes out when they're, they're in this really strong current and all the men are kind of losing it they're They, uh, you know, they're, the waves are crashing over them. She has a baby to attend to as well as like these boxes are coming out. They're very important boxes with all of their, um, measuring tools and equipment is floating, you know, like things that are worth like a lot of money. And, uh, it's all of their work. And uh, Charbonneau is is so afraid. I mean, is kind of blubbering in, in the, you know, even in the accounts can't, uh, can't help them. And she steps forward and, you know, she just fishes them out. She doesn't seem flustered by it at all. And to me, that didn't seem like, it seemed kind of in some ways like a childlike approach, like this is no big deal. You know how children approach something. Um, there's just certain things in, when, you, when you look at the way, the things that they were looking at, the things that they were observing, um, she seemed very childlike. But I do um, I do wrestle with the, the, the idea that she was older. Um, the, I, I think, or the idea that she was younger even. Um, because when you use Circa, you know, which could be a span of, I don't know, give or take so many years. When you're talking about somebody who is 12 years old, you could also be talking about someone who is nine years old. You could also be talking about somebody who's like 16 years old. So so the swing, um, the age, her her age has like a large 
pendulum swing, it seems to me. Um, I've even heard her that like some historians press it as far as her age to 23. But I think, isn't that a narrative really? If we, if we look at it, we begin to challenge that idea. Isn't that a narrative that um, kind of makes the whole Lewis and Clark expedition more wholesome, um, more acceptable to to us. Um, but what really got me, what really uh, stirred that kind of idea that she was much younger was Clark's fiance at the time that he left Virginia was 12 years old. That's a moment to sit with, isn't it? It is a moment to sit with, isn't it? I mean, I think if we look back at those days that you know and and that's just the way things were and you think about the average life there like life expectancy even back then um wasn't very long for native people uh very short lifespan 35 years i think i've i've read in some uh 50 years but it seems to make sense that she would have been younger and and you know, I mean, that kind of, it's difficult for us to accept that, isn't it? I think it's difficult to swallow the idea that, gosh, maybe she, she maybe she was 12 or 13 years old, um, you know, with, with traveling with a group of men and a, and a man who they claim is her husband who strikes her, you know, in front of the captains enough that they, you know, they don't, in in all of their accounts, like they don't write stuff, they don't they don't address things like that. They don't address the relationship, but that's that seems to me so telling, because they took the time. I think it was Clark who wrote about her being um, about Charbonneau striking her, and they had to tell him to, to kind of knock it off, uh, which makes me believe that you know when they weren't around. Um, or when she was by herself or off with Charbonneau, that he probably did more than that to her. It just, it, it just seems to make sense to me. Uh, you know, not only as a storyteller, um, but as an observer of um, human human nature. Words that stand out in this conversation are her grief, her unexpected grief the composure that someone may exhibit if they're going through trauma because they have no safety or ability to process the false aging of her. Is there any age, 23, 21, 18, where what she went through could be somehow equalized, that she's an adult too? Is there any behavior that she endured that we could ever put her at an age where she should have experienced it? a female with this group of males, the abduction, the decisions that were taken away from her, the violence, all of these have been subsumed, I think, under that mythologizing of her, that we somehow have this person who would be strong enough for all of that. And this book doesn't let you off with that explanation. Um. That's a you, you so brilliantly said that, Dr. Kessler. I'm really um I'm pleased to um to hear your your um understanding of the story. I think 
what what concerns me and I think what worries me is like anytime you take on uh anytime anyone I I I was thinking of and, and I'm not comparing myself certainly uh uh with the the brilliant the magnificent Alice Walker but when she came out with the color purple there was uh you know there was real backlash because she was addressing um issues that were not to be addressed and I think that within this story I don't um I don't forgive or uh that's not quite the right word it's not for me to forgive or or to pardon um I just try to understand what was happening at the edge of it, it actually is the edge of colonization, the edge of commerce, this, this razor sharp edge where all these things were happening, all this change was occurring that disrupted culture and desecrated, um, desecrated sacred ceremonies and uh, plundered women and uh, the land and the animals and, you know, created this kind of violent vortex of things to come. And when when Lewis and Clark came up that river, they shot off their guns. They came with great force and great power. And the disruption of, you know, just trade overall in that area, um, changing from a traditional cultures to ones of, you know, not subsistence living, but, uh, you know, introducing, you know, weapons and, you know, as trade and, you know, change the whole, the whole fabric of cultures, um, uh, change the way that men, Native men, uh, like related to Native women. Um, there was a corruption that happened. And I, I'm curious about the whole thing. I mean, I'm no historian, I'm no anthropologist. Uh, I I wonder what the reverberations of that are. You know how that affected, um, how that affected all of the all of the cultures. The you know as it went, like means whole tribes were were wiped out in the West. Um, languages were lost. Uh, you know, and now we're seeing kind of more and more of that kind of the devastation. You know, in 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 present day. Uh, what's happening with climate change what's happening when we when we seek to um to name everything to touch everything that's sacred to um to go into areas that you know are best left uh you know untouched and you think about what an incredible what an incredible vision that must have been for Lewis and Clark and all of those men. They had never seen anything like the West before. They talk about the fish uh, being so, uh, the salmon uh, being so thick in the rivers that they could walk across them. Uh, and these were not, um, these salmon were not just uh there because uh it was nature's way of providing the the native tribes actually tended to those streams and tended to the you know the proliferation of salmon and so uh you know it's it's interesting to see you know where we're at now and and how far we have to go uh to to make some kind of reparations um, to the land, uh, to the people, um, to, to heal for, for our planet to heal, I think. 
What do you believe are the misconceptions about Sacagawea? I know we've talked about her quite a bit and we've we've named a number of them, but I know that there are more. Uh, and as a, someone who studied her so much, you uh, know far more about the misconceptions of her than, than listeners. Which ones would you like to take some time to tell us about and why do you think that they're there? Um, well, I think... At worst, Sacagawea is a mascot of manifest destiny. Um, but hopefully reimagining Sacagawea as a person with inherent sovereignty to govern herself, you know, allows for a new questioning, a new forum for the Lewis and Clark expedition. Um, and it's maybe a reckoning for all of us. Um and I believe that she was influenced by many. Um, the Lemmy Shoshone, uh, the Hadatsas, the great Mandan nation, the traders, the fur trappers, the soldiers, um, the enslaved persons that she encountered. Um, I think her life was, you know, so, really so powerful. And I think... Um, we cannot deny that. In history, uh, no matter how they have uh, mythologized Sacagawea, one of the things that really is astonishing is here is this woman. And she, even if she's 16 or 23 years old or, or 12, no matter how her age, what a remarkable thing to carry a small child, an infant, you know, on her back through places that men were having difficulty getting through, you know, men who were trained in, in, uh, you know, in survival. Uh, but she had a deeper training, a deeper knowledge, and one that fortified her and one that made her uh, able to feed the core at times. Um, you know, one that allowed her to remember things to to actually they say she wasn't a guide but i believe she was a guide in in many ways um you know just with her knowledge of you know she understood uh what root marks were like where digging places were um she understood where burial sites were she understood you know how to how to kind of guide people away from those things and you know um i don't know i I, I think hopefully I just, uh, I think what I wish for most is that it opens up a conversation about our mythology of the West. Um, that really is about so much um, conquering the earth itself, um, that we'll begin to look at the ways in which our cities spread out um, and take up so much of the land that the animals need um, that that we need uh, to survive. Um, we need uh, the places, and I don't want to call them wild places because they have been inhabited, but places that um, that offer us serenity and peace, forests that are that are clean and life giving, um, streams that are uh, clear and and you know provide us with, you know, fresh water, all of the things that um, make it possible to live in this, in this world. Um, I'm hoping that, and that's a big hope, isn't it? I mean, that's a huge, huge kind of 
uh, dream to hope that it may just, in even one small classroom, begin to spark a conversation uh, that inspires um, a young person um, to lead on, to see things in a different way, uh, to question um, to question the things, uh, the narratives that we hold dear and why do we hold them so dear? To just ask those questions, I think, is an important start. How do you think your novel might engage with current conversations about Indigenous women? Well, I see her as the first stolen sister. And so, and she survived and she made it back to her people. But what I love about her, and there's so much talk about identity, and there's talk about sovereignty. But what I love maybe most about Sacagawea was, um, I don't see her, the, the Hadatsas claim that she is their, she is their native daughter, that she was born of them, and she was stolen by the Lemmy Shoshone. The Lemmy Shoshone, of course, claim that she was stolen from, you know, from them by the Hadatsas. But what I love at the very end, when her her husband-to-be will not marry her because she she was essentially raped and you know has has a, a child. Uh, Baptiste by Charbonneau, a white man, uh, she is she is like um, not accepted. And so I've just totally lost my train of thought on that. I think these cut I think these kind of larger, larger issues are so huge that um, uh, sometimes I, I swim in these ideas. You did a lot of research for this story. Um would you like to share a bit about your research method? You know, I think it's I think it's really interesting because, uh, gosh, Doctor Guess, I went picking and screaming into this, uh, into writing this. I, uh, I, um, you know, I certainly didn't want to to write about uh, Sacagawea, and I, I had to overcome my own bias and prejudice about her, and. Uh, and I think, and her role in the destruction and devastation of Manifest Destiny, and I, I had to, I had to do a whole kind of turnaround, and and rethinking and repositioning my own, my own very limited understanding um, about her as a as an enslaved uh, girl, um, and so I had to harness a lot of. I think through the whole process, I had to harness a lot of outrage. So I, so I sought not. I sought to see her originally to rest her from what little we have um, of her, uh, what little is written about her. When you read the the Lewis and Clark journals, that's where I began. And uh, if you start looking between the lines, you can start seeing. Uh, Sacagawea emerge. You can start asking yourself questions like, what was really going on here? And one of the things I think that really startled me awake about uh, about Sacagawea was there was one, um, there's one really pivotal scene in, uh, in the Lewis and Clark journals, and it concerns Sergeant Ordway. And Sergeant Ordway is given a wife, um, this uh, I think he was Mandan, gave one of his wives to uh, Sergeant Ordway for the night. Uh, 
uh, I call her wife for dark nights. And in the novel, she appears, her name is broke. Um, now what is her name? <laughs> She's a broke legs wife, um, many teeth. And, uh, when she's given to him, uh, it, it it was like this kind of scene where she's beaten and stabbed by him after after she's after she has a, re, a relationship with Ordway. After that night, her husband gets really angry, and so there's this brief section in in the journals. Um, in both Lewis and Clark, and they talk about how she comes to, uh, how she seeks refuge uh, with the interpreters at the interpreter's camp. And I thought, well, that really, really startled me because I started thinking, well, who were they, the, who are they talking about? And I thought, well, they wouldn't seek refuge with some of these male interpreters, or they certainly wouldn't seek ref refuge with Charbonneau. And I thought, they're talking about Sacagawea. It has to be. She was the one who tended to, to this woman who'd been beaten and stabbed. Um, and this woman, I thought, probably didn't survive, uh, didn't survive that uh, after they left. They left her. Um, with that husband who was jealous of her, uh, jealous of Ordway, actually. So, um, so I think that's one of the when I started looking at this story more carefully and more closely, um, when I was doing the research on this story, or I don't even call it research. I think it's just serendipitous sort of research. I I wanted to know what was el else was going on. So I read many things. Um, you know, I tried to read everything I could get my hands on, including the early fur trade on the Northern Plains. Um, and it's kind of the narratives of John McDonald, Francois Antoine LaRoque, David Thompson, and Charles McKenzie. And I've always been fascinated by David Thompson. And so I wanted to know more about him, more about what, what it might have been. But I really think as far as, you know, and then just looking at the journals themselves, looking at Ordway's uh, remarks, I think Gass was probably the most... Um, uh, he he was the best writer of the of them all, and he some of his passages are really beautiful. Um, so I started trying to piece together and then see a full account of who she was. Um, but there was a, this other thing that happened to me, which I find sort of strangely remarkable. Um, I woke up one night, uh, and there was a woman standing by my bed, and she pointed to a cage at her feet and she was very small. I remember she would look so young and so small and it was a native woman. And I thought, this can't be, this can't be, I'm not being haunted by this, by Sacagawea, I just, that can't be. But I started writing like crazy. I, I picked up a pen and even in the dark, I still have the, I have the notes. And I wrote about a sacred fox that um, Lewis and Clark had captured, and they had it in a cage, and they wanted to send it back to um, to uh, Jefferson. And the curious thing was, so I I just wrote about this 
fox and this fox is uh Sacagawea wants his fox put as far away from her as possible you know what i this is what i wrote in the middle of the night and uh she was afraid of it and it spoke in the voices of the men who had um who had beaten their wives who had um the native men who had been terrible to their wives, but this fox would not, when she tried to get the fox to leave, wouldn't leave the cage. So anyway, so I woke up in the morning, my mother called me and she said, um, hey, did you hear that the Smithsonian has released uh, the sacred fox of the Blackfeet that was uh, captured in the Lewis and Clark expedition? Um, they returned it. They repatriated it to the Blackfeet. That I just heard that news this morning, and I told my mother, "Go, oh my God! I think I wrote about that." Um, and sure enough, I went back to my notes, and there it was: Lewis and Clark had captured uh, a spirit fox. And so I think, you know, when you talk about, for, for a fiction writer anyway, when you talk about the journey of research, I, I think it becomes one that's inward, you know, one that looks into, like, I don't know, the flame, the eternal flame, maybe, uh, um, that looks into the, the river of life and returns with um, something that is astonishing, something that uh, we can't research, uh, that only comes to us in dreams and snippets and uh, music, song, uh, language we, languages uh, we don't quite understand. We're starting to run out of time and I have so many more questions I would love to ask you. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Oh, I hope they'll give it a chance. You know, I I know there's a there's a there's a a relationship between and and a contract between a writer and a reader. And that you're you know that's that contract is inviolate. You give readers something uh that that will will help them to immerse themselves. Um that will help them uh into the dream of what you have written. What I'm hoping is that um, that people will give this story a chance. I know it's not an easy story. Um, it's not an easy story in terms of content, and it's not an easy story in terms of language. It really does ask for a full immersion um, to, to kind of like wade into the, into the waters and let yourself... Um, let yourself go. And so I'm hoping um, that, you know, because this podcast reaches so many uh, teachers, uh, that they will, um, that maybe they will assign it or read parts of it to their classes. And maybe, uh, maybe just maybe people there, you know, that students and young people um, will begin to, I don't know, we begin to, like I said earlier, question um, and and go on their own journey with this story. So that that would be what I would hope. But that's a big hope. <laughs> that's a, that's a lot to place on a on on a podcast. But you know, I when I used to teach, um, when I go into class, I would always um, kind of say a little mantra to myself, and it was, you know, I I hope that. 
uh, the work that I do today reaches one person because one person um, reaches so many other people and um, good things can come from that. Thank you so, so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Dr. Gessler. I, um, I'm so honored and, and so grateful to you. Thank you. And thank you for sharing with us about the Lost Journals of Sacagawea. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. This is the Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.